This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Brunwyn Milkins. Hey, mental workers, and welcome back. So therapy is supposed to look like this. You're supposed to have a client come in, they tell you that they have depression or anxiety, you give them 10 sessions of cognitive behavioural therapy, they've changed, they've had their symptoms reduced, their life is infinitely better, and then they're discharged and they never come back, right? That, that's how it's supposed to look like, right? Well, sorry to crash that fantasy, but no, no, it, it often doesn't look like that. And that's what we're here to talk about today. I've got a fantastic guest. They are now a friend of the podcast because they are a returning guest. I haven't informed them that they are a friend now, so I hope you don't mind, Brian. Love to be your friend, a friend of the podcast. Great. Thank you, Brian. So we've got Brian Chang on. Brian is a psychologist with 15 years experience across various settings, including crisis helplines, disability, headspace, child services, and he's now a school psychologist. Hi, Brian. Hello. Thank you for having me again. No worries. Thank you so much for coming on. We're going to talk about clients who don't get better, who don't change. And Brian and I already identified that there are many definitions of this better and change. And the reason why we're doing this is because, as I said at the outset, sometimes clients don't get better and they don't change. And we need to understand why this is the case and what our reactions are as early career psychologists and what we can do to assist clients to get better or change, or if that's not realistic, adjusting the goals so that we can have a good therapeutic outcome. So Brian, let's get a shared definition together. What is better or change in psychotherapy? Very interesting question. So I think, I mean, to break it down further, I mean, the whole like getting better terminology, I mean, that's kind of like a a medical model kind of term, right? Is like, you know, you get sick and then you get better. I guess technically psychology is a uh, well, I guess that's debatable. Maybe another podcast topic about whether it's a, 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 a science <laughs> or a philosophy yeah. or something else. But I think, I mean, the two kind of big markers of getting better in that I've heard in, in mainstream psychology is symptom reduction. So whatever the client is experiencing in terms of depression or anxiety, those symptoms getting getting better or getting better or reducing um, versus functional improvement, which is them kind of getting along better with uh, the people in their lives or being more productive at work or school. And I think, look, those things are obviously important and uh, I think should be a goal for, for therapy, but at times it's, it's, it's more complicated than that. And they're not the only potential outcomes. So that kind of old saying, you know, you've got to get worse before you get better or in I don't know, more kind of colorful language, you know, the, the, the poo's got to hit the fan. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess the, the, the technical kind of systemic explanation of that is that, you know, when a client is stuck in a system or in a, in a stasis, I guess, um, sometimes there needs to be a worsening of symptoms or maybe a life crisis to break out of that, that deadlock, I guess, and then to be able to then create that change in movement. Yeah. So that's, it's, I think it's, it's hard to get, um, get your head around and particularly for, for early career psychs who are so programmed to reduce symptoms and improve functioning. Uh, that's how we're, we're programmed um, through our, our internship and our, our master's programs, as we spoke about in a previous podcast episode, but learning to go through the ebb and flow of 
where the client's at um, is, yeah, is really challenging. Yeah, what you said was really important. And I just want to pick out the idea that perhaps we're programmed to think that change is linear. So you come in, you reduce the symptoms, and it's all quite neat. Session by session, the person is less depressed, they have better relationships. But what I'm hearing from you is that sometimes there are different trajectories of change. Sometimes people are worse before they get better. And I would add to that that sometimes people have ups and downs and they don't change linearly. I think that's the word. And sometimes there are all sorts of different trajectories depending on what the person is experiencing and what their goals are. Exactly right. And what you said there kind of reminds me of, I don't know if you'd call it like a more humanistic or holistic uh, interpretation of mental health disorders. But I guess this kind of symptom reduction language kind of demonizes symptoms in a way or says that symptoms are the are what we want to get rid of. But I mean, obviously, for, for um, every uh, symptom of a mental health disorder, they're, they're, there's a function for them. You know, depression um, is really important um, or depressive periods and, you know, all that comes with it is important. And it's, it's what's um, served us evolutionarily and in terms of our overall cognition for, for millennia. Um, it means that we can ruminate and we can think through difficult things. We can withdraw and give ourselves the time and space for that. Uh, I think just calling, uh, calling mental health symptoms as things just to be reduced diminishes their value. I mean, obviously we don't want to be depressed all the time and yeah. every day and, and we don't want it to completely disable us, but um, sometimes sitting with those symptoms, there's gold there. And it means that, again, we have that ability to to change and to evolve and, and be better versions of ourselves. Yeah, no, I really like that. And as you're saying that I was thinking of anger, people often come to therapy for anger problems and they see anger as the problem to be reduced. But often when we treat anger, treat in therapy, we're actually like, what is the source of this anger? Like, why has this anger arisen? What boundaries have been crossed? What are you stopped from getting? What injustices have there been? that is the source of this anger, because we can actually see that anger has a functional purpose. It's a functional emotion. It's actually not a negative emotion to be demonized. So I really like if we come back to a definition of what change or better is, it sounds like maybe to summarize, just so we can get something for the podcast, is just there is symptom reduction, there is functional improvement, but I would also add to that, there is the client's own definition of what better or change is for them. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I guess that's that's the conceptualization of therapy as as a collaboration, but also being very client focused. Um, but I think just as you're speaking, I've, I've thought that it's about, uh, about that sense of movement, because oftentimes mm. when clients come to us, they're stuck. And in that kind of narrative formulation, they come to us well, they don't always come to us because like voluntarily or because of that, but there's a sense that things haven't been moving or that they're stuck. So I think for me, change is, or getting better is about getting unstuck, doing, doing things or feeling things a little bit differently to just get that, that flow again. Mm, I love that. I love the narrative framing of that. I used to have a picture that I showed to my clients. I haven't used it lately, but have you heard of the hero's journey? Yes. Yes. And so sometimes I used to explain it to clients through Star Wars. This is a really weird tangent, but like I used <laughs> oh, to be like, you know, Anakin had to meet Obi-Wan and then they were the mentor and then they had to meet Yoda and he didn't initially want to take on the quest, but then he was actually thrust into this situation and then he had to keep on going. 
again, I think that's a, a topic for another podcast, like Star <laughs> Wars psychology. I've got like a Star Wars psychology book and <laughs> Do you, I that's may so or may cool. not have, yeah, I may or may not have just bought myself a lot of Star Wars Lego and <laughs> technically a therapeutic tool. <laughs> technically, yes. <laughs> yeah, so no, I love that idea of getting unstuck and that perhaps like coming to us, we are the encounter that can help that. But maybe that's a good in and uh, passageway to our next thing that we wanted to discuss, which was um, sometimes early career psychologists can feel overly responsible for change and for getting better in clients. And this is quite normal. We're taught throughout our programs, like you need to be doing X, Y, Z. And sometimes we are practice owners and I guess supervisors on our backs being like, why isn't this client changed? What are you doing wrong? How can you speed this up? Why haven't you discharged them? So it makes sense that we can feel overly responsible for these outcomes. But there is a different perspective, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. And it's it's probably not a coincidence that, well, I don't know. I'm not sure um, who the the developers of this theory were, whether they were psychologists or whether they were social workers. But yeah, Michael Lambert and uh, many other um, associates of his have talked about the common factors approach to therapy. Um, and that's, I guess, a, a theory stating that the different approaches and practices in therapy and counseling, they share common factors that account for the effectiveness of a psychological treatment. So that's kind of moving away from that, that um, theory that specific modalities can treat specific things. And I guess that's what I, I when I heard about this topic, I thought of this, this theory to kind of um, go through some strategies um, but yeah, to, to kind of summarize it, I guess 40% or like a majority of the reason why therapy works is client variables. I love the way that <laughs> that's called or extra therapeutic factors. And 30% is the therapeutic relationship. Uh, 15% is the model or the technique. And then 15% is expectancy or hope. That's kind of old research I've, I've, I've realized, but that's kind of the, the broad kind of summary of it. Um, so to speak to your point, Bronwyn, about that sense that psychologists and particularly early career psychologists um, feel that you know burden of responsibility to have these clients get better, I guess this research is saying that um, half or more of the time, it's factors outside of the therapeutic relationship um, and outside the therapeutic encounter in total, which actually makes the difference or helps clients to get better. So I guess that could be could be a variety of things. It could be that student or that person getting a new job or being in a new relationship or getting an inheritance, they're, they're all, yeah, obviously hugely impactful things. So I think that's an important reminder. And something I need to remind myself of all the time is that, you know, we don't have complete control over our clients' lives. Not to say that we don't try our hardest to maximize the, the impact we do have, but knowing that at the end of the day, um, stuff's going to go down and we just have to work with, with what comes. Yeah, it's helpful and sometimes very scary. So it's helpful in the sense that we can know that, hey, we're not responsible for everything. But it can also feel like you're quite small, that you play a small role in the client's life. And you can feel a bit helpless even sometimes when you see clients who are going through really difficult stuff. And I do want to point out to listeners that remember the therapy relationship is still 30% of the model. You having a trusting safe space with somebody to share their experiences and using those counselling skills such as validation, rephrasing, restating, encouraging openness, developing trust can be really beneficial for clients. Yeah, definitely. 
and maybe I'll, I'll give a few strategies as, uh, on top of that as well in terms of the therapeutic relationship. I mean, much like like good parenting, it's that kind of the balance of empathy and support and also challenging and, and advice. And I've found that um, particularly when working with, with teenagers, um, but that could be, you know, in any client that you're struggling with, kind of alternating those approaches. So maybe one session, if you've gone kind of heavy on the challenging and some strategies, maybe the next session, um, just kind of sitting back a bit more and just doing more of that um, holding space and, and listening that way it's a bit more balanced and it gives also the client uh, maybe a better ability to stay in that window of tolerance. If, if they have, if you have too many kind of hectic challenging sessions in a row, then they might kind of clam up or um, feel a bit overwhelmed. So that kind of alternating approach can be useful, but yeah, speaking to your point, Bronwyn, about the, the importance of that relationship, um, I guess the, the relationship will always be useful and you always have the, the opportunity for a, a corrective emotional experience. So being able to validate um, something that a client said that no one else in, in the client's life has ever validated, that can be such a powerful changing moment. And um, yeah, I guess a trigger for, for change or, or for growth. Yeah. And just on your point before about, I guess, switching up the challenging and technique heavy sessions with perhaps taking a seat back and listening and counselling, do you make that explicit to your clients? Like might you say, last session was a heavy session, let's focus on what you want to do today? Or is that a decision that you come to yourself? I guess I'm trying to get at like how collaborative is your therapeutic relationship? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think I've, I've made it that explicit in terms of like that alternating approach. Um, but in general, I am yeah pretty explicit in terms of the modality I'm using, or even in this case, you know, if, if I'm struggling or if I'm feeling like things are stuck, then I'll make that pretty explicit to, to the client um, and just kind of have that conversation where you're just like, oh, hey, I'm just noticing, or like maybe I'm feeling that, that these sessions aren't working out or that we've been on this topic um, for a couple of sessions and we're stuck, you know, what do you think? Or getting kind of like a temperature check on the, on the sessions and on the relationship. I think that can be really useful. Something that I think a lot of early career psychs are probably familiar with is um, Scott Miller's work around um, like the session rating scale and the outcome rating scale. So that uh, encourages clients to mark where they are on a scale in terms of all their life domains. And that kind of sits alongside a session rating scale. And that basically um, asks the client how they, uh, if they feel like they're being listened to, um, if they're discussing the, the topics they want, and overall, I guess, what they think of how the session went or kind of how the relationship's going. So I think that can be a really useful way, as I said, to get like a temperature check on the sessions and on the relationship. And um, I think that can kind of get things moving when things are feeling feeling stuck. Yeah. So maybe that is a takeaway for our listeners that if you are feeling stuck with a client, maybe don't feel like you have to solve the problem all on your own. Like it actually can be something that you solve with the client by getting their feedback. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, I haven't thought about this before, but and I haven't done that much kind of couples therapy before, but like, like the way I think about relationships and, and, and couples therapy is that it's always about the we. It's not, you know, it's not about you or me. It's not about blame. It's about how we tackle this together. And I feel like the same goes for therapy is that it's about how the client and therapist tackle these problems together. And that as long as they can go through that, that process of communication and, and clarifying and kind of uh, reorienting the ship, um, then I think that that's uh, a useful therapeutic process and, ev and eventually will be beneficial for the client. 
I agree. And for me, I'm an early career psychologist. I set this all up in the first session and I spent a lot of time reading about change. And so sometimes in my first session, I will explicitly say, I am now on team Sarah. I got your back. I want the best for you. And I actually say that to them so that I can, and this is another component, the creating the hope and expectancy. Like I look forward to working on our goals together. I think that we can do some good work here. And I'll actually Mm. set that up with them. And that's a lot of first session stuff for me, but you can sprinkle it out throughout. And I wanted to share this because I just wanted to put something to you, Brian. So you're 15 years in, like you've got this all sorted, right? Like you never struggle with clients who don't change. This is correct, right? It's so, yeah, <laughs> it's, I'm laughing because it's just like, it, it sounds so absurd. Um, no, of course it's, it's, yeah, it's such a, an ongoing learning process. I still struggle with it all the time. Yeah, I mean, I'll give an example of... Yeah, I would love to hear if you've got a recent example and maybe tell us the recent example and I'd be so curious to hear how it might differ to when you were, I guess, starting out in your career. Um, If there would be any differences, maybe you've just mastered it early on. But (laughs) tell us, take it away. No, it's definitely been a journey. So (laughs) yeah, it was a client early last year who was, yeah, just the most, maybe the most suicidal client that I've ever worked with had been through the system, uh, has been in the system for a long time, like a long history of trauma and abuse, um, super intelligent, um, super likable young person. Um, but yeah, kind of probably knew more about the hospital system and about psychiatrists and medication than, than I did, but they came to me and they weren't like, you know, I, I guess I, I did all the the safety stuff and the, the mandatory reporting as required. Um, and I, I kind of initially started on that. Um, but uh, they were just really not responding to that at all. They, they were just saying, you know, I've, I've I've done it all. I've heard it all. I mean, all through my, like our sessions, we probably had, I don't know, five or six sessions in a, maybe a two month period that, that, that they were having hospital admissions like through that period and really struggling. So, I mean, they, they'd had all the safety planning from multiple people. So the, I didn't obviously didn't need to do that anymore. Um, obviously I would still check safety, but they, they'd known how to, they, they've, they've done all that before. So I was left in a situation where, you know, if you've got this chronically suicidal person and what do you do? So I guess I just did my best to, to be with them in that space. And that was, yeah, just talking about all the struggles in their life, the, the difficulties they're experiencing, their frustration with the system and with the, the lack of support. And just that real sense of holding space, being beside them in their grief and in their um, overwhelm. I'm curious to know what feelings showed up for you. So you've got a young person who's been in the system for many years, it sounds like. They've got chronic suicidal ideation at least. Um, it sounds like they've had some suicidal behaviours as well. What feelings show up for you in that moment of this young person who to date seemingly hasn't made um, much change? Initially, it's just a feeling of, you know, of sadness and just a feeling of tragedy um, that you've got such a young person who's super intelligent uh, but is, is struggling so much day to day. So that was the first feeling. And I, I think, as I said uh, in the last podcast episode, being like um, being a reasonably new dad, I think I, I thought about it, you know, if what if my, my child was going through this? So there was an extra sense of heartbreak, I think. In terms of other feelings, I guess in, in my mind, I was thinking, you know, what else like clinically can I do? I mean, this client has received... Well, when I say the best care, I say the, the best care that the system could offer. Yeah. <laughs> um, not the best care. 
you know, I'm, I'm not a, a borderline personality disorder specialist. I'm not a, a suicide specialist. So what, what, what is it that, that I can offer? And in that moment, I guess I made the decision to, to be uh, spiritual is probably too much of a word, but just to be therapeutically like super present and be there with them in that moment and connect in that kind of, in that deep way and just hold space. Cause I think lots of clinicians and every, everyone that they would have come across would constantly be doing, focusing on the safety, focusing on the meds, focusing on everything like that. So I don't think they'd had anyone that just sat with them in, in that really empathic space. I think that's really amazing because my initial reaction as an early career psychologist are feelings of panic and helplessness. I'm like, crap, how am I going to do this? And panicking, making sure all the paperwork is done meticulously and correct. And I would probably be that clinician that goes through the safety plan with them again. That is like, crap, if this patient does suicide, I got to make sure I have my own back. It sounds so selfish to say it out loud, but that's the way I've been trained. Make sure that you've got all your paperwork in. And so when I hear you talk, it sounds like you've got, you, you don't not have feelings. You said that you felt sad and like your heart went out to this young person, but you also took a calm approach where you were like, what can I do rather than my early career approach, which is like, crap, like I can't do this. It was, I, I don't know whether it's a, a growth mindset that you're having, but it's, I guess, a calm, competent approach. It, it, it did still come from a place of like helplessness. Okay. <laughs> like I was, I was like freaking out and obviously I was getting lots of supervision and, and guidance around this. I guess the, the other thing that I did and it was kind of acknowledging that like they didn't need any more strategies. Like they'd done heaps of DBT. They, they knew, they knew the DBT book like inside out. So mm. it wasn't those discrete strategies that was needed. It was, yeah, that kind of empathic um, regard and that kind of companionship in in the the negativity and the overwhelm. But also, I think the, one of the key things that I did, which was powerful, was around those extra therapeutic factors. So during the course of our sessions, um, they were they were sexually assaulted. They were um, and and yeah, they went through a horrible time. But the police were actually not being super great about it. They were kind of trying to push them to make a statement and to go through the the legal side of things. A big part of the work that I did was to advocate for them and end up in conversations with the, the police supervisor and going up the line with the police to say, okay, my, my client doesn't want to um, press charges, doesn't want to do all of that stuff right now. Like it's not psychologically appropriate at the moment and it's just not what the client wants to do. So it took a lot of pushing to kind of protect my client from that experience. Um, obviously, I was, I was still talking to her about the appropriateness of that kind of um, action at the right time, but you know, she was just too traumatized at that time for that. So I think that's a good example of something you can do, which isn't, you know, therapy per se, but it's very therapeutic for, for the client. Cause it's still meeting their needs. That's what I hear. I feel it's like a needs-based approach. This client needs safety and protection and you are on their team and helping them to meet these needs, which haven't been met before. Cause it strikes me like when we think about clients who aren't changing air quotes and you're thinking okay they've done all the dbt they know the workbook inside out what haven't they been offered what can i do now to meet their needs in this moment and i i think that's the approach that you took sounds like it really benefited the client yeah i guess what i felt in the room was the client felt they felt like this was new like it was it was it was the kind of therapy or like the kind of encounter that you hadn't had as much is like usually when when they would talk about their symptoms, they'd get this very panicked action-based response. Yeah. So to have someone say those things and then to just have someone 
kind of receive it and reflect it and kind of just be okay with it. I mean, not okay with it, but just not react to it so emotionally. I think that was, I think that was the correct emotional experience. I think I was, I think what I was able to model was that sitting with these emotions and with these things is okay. It doesn't require this kind of panic response all the time, obviously preserving safety and making sure that they were as safe as possible. But there was some modeling of uh, the client being able to, to tolerate some of those emotions and symptoms. Which is a DBT skill. So I'm thinking to myself, like, they've already been told the DBT skill a billion times over, and now you're modeling for them that distress tolerance and that emotional acceptance. And so it sounds like actually doing that was beneficial for them. So I want to point that out to our listeners, because sometimes early career psychs, psychoeducation is important, but sometimes we get weighed down in telling clients things. But what I'm hearing from you, an experienced psychologist, is that showing clients things can also be really helpful. Yeah, it's just something that yeah I've kind of um, debated with for a couple of years, and I'm I'm not like I'm far from an expert in dynamic psychodynamic or kind of transference or countertransference. But moving from that spectrum from very explicit to more implicit and relationally based is really important when you've got a, a stuck a stuck client. Yeah. Uh, I like how you said earlier how it's a journey for you. It has been a journey over the years because I do wonder, does this approach differ to perhaps what you would have done in your early career? Definitely. I think it it kind of maybe mirrors, yeah, the, the journey of of becoming more of a, a holistic practitioner or, or practicing more from your gut rather than your, your your head. I think being less reactive, being less quick to intellectualize and then to to just plug the holes with strategies. I mean, I was having this debate with, or this conversation with my colleagues is we feel so guilty, not giving a strategy yeah, <laughs> like yeah. to, to go through a session and to not have done some exercise or something like it's a, such a collective guilt. I feel. Yeah. I definitely feel that guilt. I'm like, Oh no, yeah. I didn't give them a tool. That's my number one reason for going over time <laughs> in sessions. Cause I'm like, crap, I haven't given them a tool. Better go over by 20 minutes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's so true. So I think yeah, early in my career, that's what I've done. I would have done like the strategy stacking and maybe just been less willing to to sit with a client with their their emotions. Um, and and as I guess we spoke in the last podcast episode, bringing myself to the room. So yeah, being being more yeah more more quick to 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 flick to flick to strategies or to safety planning or whatever. Yeah, obviously still doing those things, but balancing it up with I guess that um, therapeutic alliance and. Yeah, just I guess the, the the basics of what we know about the work is having people feel heard. Yeah, that's that's what I heard with your story, really. I was like, this person has been through the system for a number of years and it sounds like perhaps their encounter with you was the first time that they had felt like they weren't just this piece of meat being chucked around and they weren't just this collection of symptoms, that they were actually a person who had choices and needs as well. I mean, the backstory to it was that I worked with this student at a previous school I worked at maybe a couple of years ago. And then they came to the, the school I was working at. And so we had that, that encounter then. So there was a sense that, you know, we had that relationship as well, so which, which helped. Um, but then um, the student left, left the school, you know, after we, well, for various reasons. But I did see them in the supermarket probably a month or two after our sessions finished. I didn't, I didn't say hi. Yeah, it wasn't kind of the right timing. But it was nice to get that feedback that they were still alive and <laughs> to be okay. And we don't often get that feedback. No, we don't. Yeah, I was thankful to the universe. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, it's like, oh, good. They must be alive because I can see them. Yeah. 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 
Thank you for sharing that story. I think it's really valuable to our listeners to hear how an experienced psych approaches things and then to hear that contrast with how the feelings that might come up as an early career psych. And it sounds like much of the same feelings are there, but you do go seek supervision. You do talk about it. You try and have a calm approach. You think about what you can do to meet this person's needs in the moment. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, all, all those all those same things still apply. And yeah, like like that client last year that I was, I was talking about, like obviously I was privileged to 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 see them and to try and help them, but it it took a toll. Like that that term or that two months where I was seeing them was really draining. So it's not saying that seeing seeing these clients is easy, um, but it's really valuable. And yeah, I learned so much therapeutically from from that encounter. Yeah, let's talk about that for a moment because it can be quite draining to see clients who don't change, particularly if you're seeing a lot of clients, let's say you work in a suicide specialist service um, and you're seeing lots of clients who have chronic difficulties, it can feel quite draining. You might feel hopeless, helpless. You might feel very tired. I could see burnout potentially creeping up and you might become disillusioned with the work. Mm. I guess what are some practical strategies that we can say to listeners to help them if they have a caseload that is quite demanding and that they don't change yeah it's a tricky one I mean yeah supervision is is always really good yeah from a, a case perspective to really yeah figure out what other types of interventions or what other approaches you can take and also just to get a bit of emotional support yourself yeah obviously we've spoken at, on the previous episode about um, your own therapy um, or yeah getting support yourself I think yeah that's been really useful for me personally obviously increasing you know general self-care and you know kind of boosting your well-being through yeah, all the usual ways, sleep and exercise and diet. And I think, I mean, this might not always be possible in people's roles, but acknowledging the extra work that these really stuck cases take and being able to make some other type of adjustment, um, whether that's on your individual caseload, if you're seeing that client that day, then maybe don't see as many clients that day in general. But just acknowledging that these really stuck clients are kind of can be twice or three times the um, effort and sometimes the, the paperwork, uh, the paperwork um, level of, of another client. So making those adjustments um, in your own caseload or with your supervisor, I think um, is really important. Yeah, I've noticed that other psychologists use those sorts of strategies. So they might say have several clients who are very draining, who they feel that in their caseload. Um, for whatever reasons, it might be that they have chronic suicidality or they trigger something in the um, psychologists themselves, like maybe they have a similar trauma to the client that they're seeing. For whatever reason, they're draining and they might try and see less clients on that day or they may try, if they can, schedule draining clients and alternate with less draining clients. It's it's a privilege if you can, but so I know sometimes people try and do it. If you have the option of deciding which cases you take on as well, then which we always have the decision, but sometimes in workplaces it is like see this person. But if you can decide and you have more autonomy in that, some people do decline to take on less less challenging cases as they're saying that I'm already booked up with clients who feel emotionally draining to me. And I quite like these approaches because it is acknowledging that the psychologist is human too. We can't just give all of ourselves to everyone. My favorite saying around that is don't set yourself on fire to keep other people warm, that sort of thing. <laughs> and we, we can't, we can't do that. And it's not, it's not a weakness on our part. It's just acknowledging that the human experience can be quite difficult and tricky to work with. Totally. Yeah. That's like, I agree 100%. It also reminds me of this, this meme I saw, I think it was on 
uh, I don't remember where, but it was saying that like welfare work or being a psychologist or a social worker, it's the only job where you're, your bonus for being good at your job is more of the same work. <laughs> and and typically if if you're like you're good with with stuck clients, then you're more likely to get thrown more stuck clients. Yeah. Being able to kind of push back and yeah, have those boundaries is really important. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I resonate with that. One of my top referrers right now is sending clients to me who have seen other therapists and then they're like, go see Bronwyn. Like she'll help you get unstuck. And I'm like, oh my gosh, the pressure. So that's my, that's my main referral source right now. So, so yes, yeah, so this episode is as much for me as it is for you listeners. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, sometimes it's not in your own interest to be to be good at your job. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm wondering if we can go to maybe like a quick fire round because it is, okay, so there are a number of reasons why clients get stuck and how we can help them get unstuck. But one of the things we haven't touched on, we've touched on clients who have chronic difficulties. and But I guess another aspect of that is clients who have had chronic difficulties who believe they can't get better. Maybe they haven't, maybe they've lost hope or they haven't had the right treatment or the right therapist in order to get better. Maybe there are some other reasons for that. Sometimes clients, they don't want to engage in therapy because they've lost hope. Maybe we can talk a bit about some strategies that if psychologists notice this in their own clients, that they feel hopeless, that they feel helpless. Do you have any ways that you help clients get unstuck from that hopelessness or helplessness? I think as we've been speaking, I guess there's like a spectrum of, of approaches and, you know, if, if the top one doesn't work, then you can kind of, you know, peg back or, or go, go down that spectrum. So yeah, obviously if, if you, all the kind of more mainstream approaches um, or kind of the explicit strategies, you know, CBT and all that aren't working so much, then going pegging back to a more kind of relational approach and bringing more of ourselves to the room, that could be an option. I guess the other option I haven't spoken about was involving um, friends or family members or another, another party to kind of get that, yeah, outsider perspective. And just, I guess, again, changing up the, the dynamic of the therapeutic environment that can be, can be useful. Again, like what we said before about kind of addressing those extra therapeutic factors, whether that's helping them find a new job or uh, helping them with finances or something like that, that can, I guess, maybe be the Kickstarter to lightening their burden a bit, uh, burden a little bit, which might then open up a bit more of their window of tolerance for therapy. Yeah, absolutely. I see this a lot with young people, actually. Sometimes I see young people and the, the thing that I see from my perspective is they need to actually move out of home but it's not realistic for them. They don't have the finances and the housing market is terrible right now. So it's very difficult for them to find housing. And so they get helpless and hopeless. And a lot of our work is around how can they survive in this environment and how can I help them achieve what they want to achieve with that? It's, it's quite difficult. So I feel that sometimes I lose hope, but I need to hold that for them. And I in the room, even though internally I am, I, I feel a bit hopeless. I try and communicate to them what they can do. And I guess that is a bit of emotional labor on my part, but I'm happy to do it because I know that they, they need it. They need to know that things can get better. Things can change. That's such, such a great point. And yeah, particularly when I'm working with like younger high school students, it's, it's tricky to figure out how to approach that because you know that when they're in year seven, they've got to a lot of time yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah whereas when they're you know you're 11 12 you know it's not not that far away so choosing when to have that discussion around 
leaving home um because you don't want to you know you give them like a five-year sentence at home no. um yeah I guess the, the right time and place to start nutting out to those possibilities. Yeah. So I guess what we're saying is that it's individual to every client. So we've got some top level strategies such as explicitly generating hope and being like, I believe that this can change. I am hopeful that if we do X, Y, Z, that we can make an, a dent in, in this and we can get somewhere. We can also draw on their own character strengths. So I know that sometimes I say to clients, you've survived so many things and you're still here. And you must have had some skills that you've learned and you must have some strengths to have gotten this far. So we're going to draw on that so we can keep on going. So I try and make them aware of their own strengths as well and that strengths-based approach. There are also, what else do I do? Mm, I do mainly those two things. Sometimes I do talk about it explicitly. Like I do, you know what I do? I do this decisional balance. I do the uh, pros and cons of change, pros and cons of staying the same. Because with change, with change, there is always loss. You're going to lose something. And so what is it that is compelling you enough to make that change that would make the loss okay to bear or that you find it better on the other side? And sometimes I go through that. Sometimes I acknowledge the frustration and I bring myself into the room that way. I feel a lot of frustration when clients don't change. That's just, Mm. that's my stuff. But yeah, those are some of the main things that I do. But I just, I also acknowledge that it's so tricky. Is there anything else that you do? No, I think, as I said before, figuring out whether it's their stuff, your stuff, or it's the, the therapeutic relationship. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think once you tease that out, then that'll give you, I guess, the next step. So whether it's, whether you do need to challenge the client more, and I guess that's where you can be a bit more daring with, with challenging um, potentially. Um, and I guess in being, inf- being inflammatory in, in a session can be tricky and, yes. and you don't always want to, yeah, you've got to tread carefully, but I think if you've got the relationship, then that's a dynamic you can play with and test out. But yeah, otherwise it's, if, if it's really a soft spot for, for the therapist, then yeah, getting supervision around that is really important. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. As you're saying that, I'm just like, oh, these are such tricky skills to be able to work out. What's your own stuff? What's their stuff? What are we both co-contributing? And then to be able to share that in a way that is therapeutically beneficial for the client. Getting some psychoanalytic supervision myself, I got some last year. I found it hugely beneficial because one of the key things I learned was that I don't need to say what's happening in the room as it's happening, I can put that in the back of my head for later and use that as an opportune time or when it's the right moment. And I was like, oh, thank God. Like I don't actually have to do process comments all the time and it might actually not be effective to bring it up at that moment. And so uh, it was, it was just hugely like relieving to me. And I love getting psychoanalytic supervision actually. Wow. I'm, I'm not heard of that. I'm totally I'm totally Googling that. Yeah. And- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Amazing. My supervisor was like, you just keep that one in the back of your head. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. But that's, I think that's, that's what you, what you've said before, but I, this, all this takes so much time. Cause it's a bit of a, it's like a dark art. It is. It's <laughs> not, it's not easy to learn. And no. it's this kind of weird like dance and yeah, it's really sophisticated. Um, which is probably why people don't do it as much because it's, <laughs> It's it's a lot harder work, but it's more effective. Yeah, it's hugely rewarding. It can be what this client needs to help them get unstuck. So what I would say to our early career listeners is that if you're delving into this transference, counter-transference, how do I make process comments, do talk to your supervisor about it. Be like, I want to learn how to do this. 
And it can be something that you can learn with these skills, even though they are advanced skills, I would say that we got to start somewhere, right? Definitely. And it's again, acknowledging that the relationship is, is so, so important. So for us to, um, for, for any therapist to ignore that component would be, would be negligent. Yeah, no, I agree. Brian, is there something we haven't touched on so far that we really should have? Did we skip over something? Is this something we should have expanded on? I think the, the, the kind of um, the through line of what we're saying is that, yeah, it's okay. It's okay to be stuck. Like yeah. that's not necessarily a bad thing, but what you do with the stuckness and um, I guess um, approaching the stuckness collaboratively with, with the client and with your supervisor is, is the best way is the best way forward. Yeah. It's good. It's not always important just to get better or, or to, to be fixed. It's I guess the journey, the journey through that, which is um, the therapeutic part, I think. Yeah, I agree. That was a really nice summary. And to add to that, sometimes clients, they want to come for self-understanding or they want to enhance something else. They don't necessarily want to get better. Like people usually say, I want to feel better, but they might be seeking something else. And so it's really important to listen to the person in front of you and collaborate. The other thing that I was thinking is that if the person knew how to achieve what they wanted to get out of therapy, they wouldn't be coming to see you. So in a way, all therapeutic relationships stuck start with this stuckness. And it's something that we all need to get good at, I guess, in order to help people along in their journeys. We actually need to meet them at their stuckness and recognize that it's not going to be linear, that it might be, okay, we're stuck, we're getting unstuck, but now we're stuck again as we move on into this journey and meet them where they're at would be, would be my takeaway. Yeah, definitely. And there's an, another kind of saying came to mind from one of my old supervisors, never work harder than your client. And again, it's obviously acknowledging that kind of meeting in the middle, the kind of joint process. Because if, if you're kind of stressing and, you know, coming up with, you know, all these like treatment plans and then, you know, you get in the room and it's like, you know, you end up talking about Pokemon, yeah. then, <laughs> then maybe, yeah, you're working a bit too hard. Yeah. No, and I've been there, done that. Like I remember once, uh, maybe a few times I've come in really excited about something new that I've learned to the client and I haven't met their needs in the room. I remember once I printed out a whole workbook for a client because I was like so excited about this new approach. They didn't come back and I was like, oh, I went in too strong. I know it. (laughs) And I've done that a few times. So I've definitely learned to like mellow out and just remember to meet the client's needs in front of me and not not work like so hard that I scare them off and they're like, what the hell are you doing? (laughs) Yeah, we're, you know, psychologists are, you know, excitable kind of <laughs> novelty driven people. Yes. And um, we like to we like to solve a problem, but I guess meet in the middle. Meet in the middle. Yes. Thank you. Okay. And I think we'll, we'll end on that then. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. Brian, thank you so much for being with us and providing your expertise and insights and professional journey with this topic of working with clients who get stuck, who don't change, who don't get better. I think we've learned a lot. It's, I still, yeah, kind of wince at being called an expert. But yes, thank you for, thank you for having me. It's, <laughs> as I was saying to you before, it's like me being on the podcast, like it helps me to, to learn and to kind of reflect on things. So thanks for having me. No worries. Thank you so much. And listeners, thanks for listening again and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mental Work the podcast for early career psychologists. I could use some help getting the word out about this podcast. 
if you wouldn't mind, take a moment and give me a review on iTunes or Spotify or let someone know about the show. Thanks for listening. Have a good one and see you next time.